This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, me, Cindy Adams, the same Cindy Adams who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week, in the New York Post. You're stuck with me. So first, I want to tell you about a document I received. Now pay attention, because you will be interested in this. It came from a convict named Bill Mercy. Now pay attention. Bill Mercy was Jeffrey Epstein's cellmate in Manhattan's downtown Metropolitan Correctional Center. I figured, with the current trial of Epstein's friend, Jelaine Maxwell, you might be interested in what this man sent me. Before I tell you all he said, I add the fact that he sent me word that, quote, I've done freelance writing before, so am I inclined to someday consider writing a book about all this? The answer is yes. So here now, word for word, is Bill Mercy, the jail cellmate of Jeffrey Epstein, in his now sent me word for word account. Bill Mercy was the cellmate of Jeffrey Epstein. He was called his cell buddy. Mercy said, quote, When I was incarcerated in the downtown Metropolitan Correctional Center, we had a room companion program for monitoring prisoners who needed what we called sort of special protection or who might be on suicide watch. Inmates, not professionals, got quick quasi-training plus 40 cents an hour pay to sit for a four-hour watch. This included periodic check-ins. Said Mercy, quote, I was its boss. I was called the inmate companion coordinator. Now, these are his exact words. Every single thing I'm saying is the word of Bill Mercy, the convict who was Jeffrey Epstein's cellmate. Why was he chosen to be Jeffrey Epstein's cellmate? The short version is, and these are his words, I was a college-educated, nice Long Island Jewish boy. Same background, same schooling as Epstein. The rest of the answer is, flunking arithmetic, he'd been sentenced to a year and a day, which was why he was in the can. It was a two-man cell. All of this is his wordage exactly. The two-man cell was 60 square feet. It was originally designed for only one man. There was no upper bunk ladder and no bar to keep us from falling from the top. Daily routine for us was up 6.15, breakfast, back to sleep, lunch, then five hours, then dinner. These room companion programs meant six four-hour shifts daily. So what was he like, I asked. He said, well, Epstein wasn't depressed, not when he came in, nor was he a diva. One-on-one, -on -one, we talked about everything. We kind of sort of hung out. He even asked at one point 
if I needed money. He even said about flying a private plane once with Donald Trump and Bill Clinton and the prince in England to Florida. He said, I was like a kid he went to school with. He didn't ask dumb questions about my life, said Bill Mercy about Epstein. And 7 p.m. to 11, I kept him entertained. That was my job. Normal conversation. Epstein, he said, was future-oriented. Like, how am I going to survive? He did not appear suicidal, nor visibly depressed. He'd sit on the toilet sideways so he could continue to see me. Then he'd lie on his back and go to sleep. The incongruity was, I'd often seen Jeffrey Epstein drift off, saying aloud, Oh my God. I'm going to be here for the rest of my effing life. But when the judge denied him bail, he did obsess a little on how to handle prison life. But it was not my job to stress him. The truth is, he did try to do himself in once. I knew about it. When I saw one time, he had marks on his neck. I asked, what the F happened to you? He said, quote, I got up to get a drink of water, end quote. He did not elaborate on the lie. That then brought him into the special housing unit. That's for troublesome boys or suicide cases or those afraid of the general population because there were really dysfunctional, bad inmates there. So, did Mercy believe Epstein did himself in? Or did he maybe believe some other source did him in? What he said to me was, quote, I didn't know those guards around him in that special housing unit. They were what we called end-of-the-line guys. They rotated. They punched a time clock. They were kind of collegiate and hung out with inmates. It wasn't a crackerjack organization. When a wave of staff was brought in afterwards to assess exactly what happened to Jeffrey, they said, quote, this is the worst run prison we have ever seen in our lives. That particular unit is a detention. It's a hole. You just sit in a corner. It's locked down 23 hours a day. The warden hadn't seen fit to put somebody in there with him, so there was nobody to stop him when he did what he did. It's been said by other cellmates. They heard Jeffrey tearing sheets that night. So, do I believe Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide? My answer is yes. Now, before I go further, how did I get this? For some reason, I've forgotten exactly how. I was given a phone number that Mercy would respond to. And I called him through a friend 
and he returned a call and sent me on an email we gave him, not my own email, but an email that would get to me. And he said, there's going to be stuff about it and me, and I'll be a principal character in it. Listen, I've done freelance writing before, so am I inclined to consider writing a book? Yes. Should this ever become a movie, the Metropolitan Correctional Center prisoners in Manhattan will not be filmed in Technicolor. Their authentic uniforms will be shot in living dark brown. So again, do I believe Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide? Absolutely. My answer is yes. That was what Bill Mercy, who also became Paul Manafort's cellmate, told me. And he is going to, at some point, write a book about it. That's Bill Mercy. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. So now an interesting guest. I am going to talk with Miss Maine with an E, M-A-I-N-E, Anders. She's not someone dressed up for the holidays. She's someone often undressed for the holidays, even for the non-holidays. Maine, brunette, good-looking, curvy, is a burlesque queen. She takes stuff off. Okay, Maine, first... The particulars, height, weight, bosom size, behind shape, hair color, etc. Describe yourself. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so um, I tell people that I'm 5'7", but I'm actually 5'6". I just like the way it sounds. 5'7", <laughs> just has a better ring to it. I am, I am a, a busty girl. I'm a, a G cup, a 32G. I don't know my waist because before COVID it was something, and now it's, uh, it's healthy and... Lovely. And um, yeah, um, the, the kids today say thick with two C's, not with a K. So I have, I have I'm a buxom girl, lots of body, like old school Hollywood, I would say. Okay, where are you from? I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Tell me your hair color. I mean, I know, but they, I want them all to know you. Oh, yeah. You know what, Cindy? We should just tell them. I'm just, I'm, I'm a black girl. So my hair is like beautiful, luxe, espresso Brown. In other words, shut up with that. Okay, okay, I got it. Okay. So a book learner type is now a stripper. What did I miss? How did this start? Okay, so I've always been a dancer. My mom said that when I was a kid, I came out the womb dancing. Like I was doing it in there and I came out doing it. I took ballet lessons from four to ten years old and uh, danced throughout my life. And my parents divorced and my mom said, well, we got to can those dance classes for a bit. We moved back to Atlanta. We were living in Montgomery, Alabama, where my entire family's from. Really great. Yeah. yeah. So I couldn't wait to get out of there. <laughs> and um, we moved back to Atlanta. And I just, I was a cheerleader for a while. And I always knew I wanted to dance. But my mom insisted that I go to college because all of uh, my siblings are college graduates. And my father was a dentist. My mom's an educator. So she said, my child is not going to dance. You need to have an education. So I went to uh, Georgia State University 
and I majored in cultural anthropology because it was the closest. Oh, close sure. That's what's the perfect thing for what you do. I cannot imagine a better subject. Yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't realize how perfect it was until I I started dancing full time. I did my research and I found out that Catherine Dunham, who has a, an actual like there's a dance form specifically called Dunham. You take those classes. And um, she was a cultural, anthropolo a cultural anthropologist as well. So I feel like I everything that I've done has been a logical progression, something that I <laughs> felt inside me to get back to the stage. I don't quite understand. I mean, you wanted to learn to dance. I mean, an anthropologist digs, not jigs. It's different. <laughs> I mean, how does that, what did I miss here? Well, the beautiful thing about cultural anthropology is that it allows you to like go in to different cultures and experience the things that bring them together and, and that they celebrate, whether it's their food or their language or their dancing, their clothing, their textile, their culture. So um, dance is such an important part of our, of all of our cultures. And the thing that I wanted to do was celebrate learning all of those different forms. So I studied ballet, I studied African belly dance, I studied some contortion. That was when I was a lot younger and more flexible. I don't do that anymore because <laughs> I might break a hip. But um, So I just wanted to learn all these different dance forms. I, I learned some samba when I went to Brazil. So I feel like all of the different dance forms that I gravitated toward, I just put them all in a pot, stirred them up, and that's how the main attraction was born. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've never heard an answer like this to why somebody is a stripper. I mean, there must be something I'm missing here. You look great, and your anthropology doesn't show at all. I mean, I don't know what it's supposed to show. Okay, so you got from Atlanta or wherever the hell you were from to New York. How New York? How did you get here? What did you do for money? Okay, so I I had a boyfriend at the time, and he, he asked me, he said, hey, if we... Uh, if I moved to New York City, would you come with me? And I said, that has, that's the place I've always wanted to live. Like, the first time I saw Sesame Street, I was like, that is my home. Tell me how to get to Sesame Street. Because where I grew up, we didn't hang out in parks. I grew up in, like, a cul-de-sac in the suburbs. There were, like, barely any sidewalks. So to see kids of all different cultures hanging out together, celebrating each other, I was like, that's what I want to be a part of, culture, the the fever of New York City. It's such a heartbeat and it's so alive. And all the films that I fell in love with, now looking back, I'm like, oh, no wonder I'm a stripper and a burlesque performer because Sweet Charity was inspiring to me. Gypsy Rose, uh, Flashdance, like uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's when Audrey Hepburn went into the, the burlesque club and she said, do you think she's handsomely paid? And they're playing the stripper song. I'm like, it's just elegant and beautiful and the ultimate ex expression of, of, of glamour, of women, of femininity. So Sesame Street, I mean, what about the UN? I mean, what about the Statue of Liberty? This is what you thought was great about New York? Sesame Street? Sesame Street and Cabaret. Like, I wanted to be a dancing girl. I wanted to be a showgirl. And, and if you watch, like, old school Muppets and... Not all of us do, honey. I mean, <laughs> there are other things that we're looking at. You know what I mean? Well, the kid in me saw saw the show. I was, you know, the, the two old guys, like the critics and, and the showgirls and the chefs. Like, you could feel the fever of New York City, and I just wanted to be a part of it. And I, I knew that I wanted to be on stage. And I, I didn't know that I was going to ultimately take my clothes off on stage, but um, 
it's been a fun, fun time. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure. Okay, meantime, as long as your clothes were off, uh, were there any guys in your life? I mean, except this guy who wanted to invite you to New York? Oh, the, yeah, there were some guys in there, but, yeah. you know. Okay. My, my grandmother told me a very, very important thing. She said, there are always going to be guys, so... This Just was from your grandmother. My grandmother. Listen, I don't know where you where <laughs> you learned anything, but this is not what I can believe. Your grandmother taught you about always guys. My grandmother told me treat a man like a car and always have a spare tire. Yeah, yeah, fine, okay. <laughs> Listen, as a, barreling on as we are, uh, you went to you you went to work at the Limelight Club. I remember the Limelight. It's not there anymore, is it? No, it's a marketplace now. They turned it, 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 it was a church, they turned it yeah. into a notorious nightlife spot, yeah, and now yeah. it's a marketplace. There's also a Chinese restaurant in it. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do in the Limelight Club? I was one of their lead performers. I started out at a place called the Sound Factory, and they booked me uh, to belly dance for one of their shows. I, I answered an ad in the back of the Village Voice. That was my first dance gig in New York City. I answered an ad in the Village Voice. And I went and auditioned at the Sound Factory. They hired me to belly dance for their event. And then they brought me on because they liked my dancing. And I was a go-go dancer for a while. And then one of the head drag queens didn't show up for work. And I was a drag queen for a year. No, what could be better for an anthropologist? I mean, mm -hmm. I just cannot believe. So who taught you how to schlep your clothes off? You have to learn to be graceful and how to do that. You just can't pull your stuff off. How do you learn to do that? Uh, a lot of trial and error. I mean, it was really fumbly at the beginning because no one really teaches you. I think that it comes from just observation and seeing the people on stage that are the greats in the room, the, the, the stars of the shows and the events. And you just learn by watching and observing. And if you're really talented, you you become inspired and you make it your own instead of imitating. But there aren't any such types around anymore, are there? I yeah, there are plenty. Uh, there's Angie Pontani. Angie Pontani's um, married to Lady Gaga's trumpet player, uh, Brian Newman. So they perform. I performed with Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett, Brian Newman and Angie for the Cheek to Cheek special on PBS. I was one of the showgirls for that. Um, they're in Vegas all the time performing. There's Dirty Martini. There's Joe Boobs, also known as Joe Weldon. She has the New York School of Burlesque. There's a school There's of a burlesque? There's a school. You can actually go and learn how to twirl your tassels and shake your little rompy skirt, your little fringy skirts and your panel skirts, peel your gloves, shake your boas. I... I would like to learn to shake my boas. I can, you want to you want a little lesson right <laughs> no, now? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. Thank you. We're on radio. We're on radio. But when we go on TV, you'll show me how to shake my boas. Absolutely. I'll make you some pasties. You're oh gosh, that would be semi great. So look, does being <laughs> does being a stripper in burlesque make decent money? Yeah, yeah. I mean. I think that when you're first starting out, I, I had a different experience because I came from a different environment. Um, I 
was kind of grandfathered in because I came in as such a force. I really believed that I was great at what I was doing, even though I was quite fumbly. I believed myself. I was like, I'm awesome. I really wasn't that great. I grew to be great. But, um, you know, I think you just have to have the confidence going into it because there are some places that don't pay very much. But if you believe in yourself, people will pay you. I've performed private events for Mark oh, that's Jacobs and... You mean private events, they'll pay you a lot of money. Yeah. You know, sometimes I think that when you first start out in burlesque, it's more like being a comedian and it's like a, a showcase. Yeah. So it's just a, an opportunity for you to go on the stage and be seen at these venues. And then what happens from people coming to see you at these venues, that's when you get the creme de la creme of events. So they so they pay good money, don't they? They yes. pay good money. Yeah, I yeah, know. That's great. What about are they... Are, are any people rude or do they make lewd remarks or something like that? I don't know about that. They're mostly well-behaved. I think they under, most people know what they're coming to see. And so they're celebratory and very happy. But then you get that, like, drunk person that's like, yeah, take it off. And we're like, that's going to happen anyway. You don't have to encourage <laughs> us to take it off. That's the end result, uh, sir, madam. Whoever you are. Um, so you get those people and you get the like, yeah, shake it, baby. It's like it's happening. Let it, Just let it happen. But I think that's just like with like going to a comedy show where there's that one heckler that just wants to be heard. Yeah. But most of the time people are just so happy to be a part of it. I find that there are more women that celebrate burlesque than men because. Why is that? Why? I think it's an act of like courage and femininity. You know, I think you might be right. Yeah. What about Chippendales? Do you go there? Have you gone there? I've never gone, and I really... It, does it? Is it still here? I don't know. I don't think so. I know they have that one in Vegas. Um, it's a guy... What's the name of the one? It's like... I don't, I don't know. Oh. But I, I don't know if it's still around. It was great. Yeah, they have one in Vegas. I think they have a couple of in, in Vegas, but I can't remember the names of them. I'm so bad at names. Well, if you're good at other things, sweetie, yeah. so I mean, forget it, okay? <laughs> forget the names. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. So, any good stories you can tell us about burlesque, about the where you were working or people did whatever? Oh, wow. I think, okay, so... I think one of the greatest moments I experienced was standing on stage next to Tony Bennett and just like staring at him like a kid. You know, everyone was freaking out about Lady Gaga. I love Lady Gaga. She's fantastic. But she's lousy in the movie. Oh, just lousy in yeah? the movie. Yeah. I want you to be the first to hear it. She's lousy in the movie. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Go ahead. Okay, I'm going to look out for that. Yeah. But so I'm sta so like the kids are like Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga. And I'm like, she's great. She's fantastic. But meanwhile, I'm just staring at Tony Bennett. I'm like, I'm on stage with a legend. And they had us in this starting pose before, you know, they called action. And I'm just pointing my fingers like guns at Tony Bennett staring at him. And he could feel me. And he just turns his head and he goes, hello, gorgeous. And I'm like, Hi, like a total teenager swooning almost. I had to bend my knees a little bit so I didn't faint. Um, that was really great. I met James Brown. I opened for James Brown at one of his last shows at um, Gotham, I think. Gotham Hall. Yeah, that was really yeah. amazing. 
Wow. Um, who else? You know, you look white to me, so you keep saying you're black. I look white? You, yeah, you do. You have very light skin. I put bronzer on. Well, I don't know where you put it because you're a stripper. <laughs> Who knows where you shoved it? But your face, your face looks like. <laughs> well, okay. So you know, they down south they say all you need is a drop of blood to be black. They do say that. They do believe that. But my grandmother is half white. So my grandmother was which half? Uh, so, <laughs> so my grandmother's mother was a German Jew. Wait a second. You're a mess altogether. Yes. So you're, bl- you're black, you're half black, you're half white, you're half German, you're half Southern. What are you? Actually? I am America. Good enough, baby. I'm like the melting pot. When That's they say the great. melting pot, I am. Like I'm, I have German Jew. I have Native American. I have black. We don't know where from because slavery. Um, <laughs> I just have, I'm just like a big old mix. You know, I'm, I'm. The Thanksgiving dinner that no one talks about anymore. And nobody should. It's lousy. That's another yeah. lousy thing. That they, okay. So, in the days when you dated, either a guy or a girl or whatever, I don't care what you dated, did does is it different when they know that you're a stripper? Do they treat you differently? I don't know what it's like to be in your position. I The thing that I realized over time, it took me a while to figure this out, too, Um I've because I've been performing for so long, a lot of the people that I would date, I would meet wherever I was performing. Oh. And it didn't work out. Like none of those relationships worked out. And one of my good friends said to me, You Maine, you have to stop dating your fans. Yeah, I and so I made a rule for myself, a personal goal and rule for myself that unless they met me as main first, they could not meet the main attraction. So I have a rule, even with my friends and family, like, I want to bring my friend to see you perform. I'm like, well, I'd like to meet them first. Even if I meet them for a brief second outside, I want them to see who I am as a person because I find that people fall in love with the persona on stage and they expect for me to be that all the time. Like, as much as I want to feel like, be like Beyonce and say, I woke up like this, I Absolutely did not. I really groomed myself to be here in front of you today. I do not look like this. So I think that people think that you're that persona full time all the time. And when you're not that pedestal, you kind of get knocked off of it over time. I think maybe that might be for any one of us who's a little bit in show business because we none of us look like we look when we wake up. I mean, right. I, I look like an old prune, for God's <laughs> sakes. So it's difficult for us all. I understand that. Is burlesque coming back, or did it never go away? Where is it? I don't think it's anywhere in New York. You're telling me it is, but I don't know where. Oh, my goodness. It's all over. As, as a matter of fact, sometimes I feel like it's it's oversaturated. I'm like, get these little young brats out of here and let me do my thing. Like, where are you coming from all of a sudden, you 20-year-old? You know? So um, one of the places I perform that I love, 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 it's a speakeasy, and it's called Bathtub Gin. And when you walk into the front of the building, it's a coffee shop. And then you walk through a secret door, and it's a speakeasy. Where is this? It's in Chelsea. It's uh, 8th Avenue between 17th and 18th, I believe. So do you work there, or did you just go there, or do you drink no. there, or what? I Well, I do all that. <laughs> I definitely have my fair share of delicious cocktails there. They're, you yeah, know, I got it. they're yeah. known for okay. their cocktails. Yeah, okay. Okay. So 
you're young and gorgeous and skinny, and what's an old broad do when she used to shake and show and she gets wrinkles in her various parts? <laughs> <laughs> what is an old... Well, I, what is an old... Stripper do. Okay, this is what I'm going to tell you With about this. Parts. The beautiful thing about burlesque, and 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 I, I this is the thing. Stripping and burlesque kind of split off at some point, right? At the beginning, burlesque was was the stripper, right? But then, as time went on, like around the late '60s, early '70s, it split because there were the burlesque performers that showed just a certain amount and then there were like, there was like the full on nude review and that's when like pornography came about and all of the things right that everyone can google that so the thing is is that burlesque now is an art form because it's a nostalgic experience burlesque originally it's about satire and beauty and making comedy out of the glamour of femininity. You're making this into an opera. I mean, <laughs> burlesque is burlesque. What are you talking about? Okay, so, I'm listening to you. I'm telling you right now. I'm trying to follow you. The beautiful I'm thing. I'm going to throw you out in a minute altogether. Okay, okay. I'm just going to. I'm going to keep it short. I'm going to say this. Burlesque is one of the few art forms that involves stripping that you can do until you die. An old broad is going to show wrinkles on her whatevers. Yep. 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 Well, who wants to look at it? Have you heard of um, Satan's Angel? No. Satan's Angel used to twirl fire tassels. She did well, that until she well, died. No, no. <laughs> yeah. I never heard about that. Yeah, Satan's Angel. Um, oh, Dixie Evans. No, I mean. Tony I... Elling. Tony Elling just recently stopped performing. I think she's in her 80s or 90s. And people wanted to see her wrinkled things? Yes, because she's a legend. Tony Ellen is the reason why Duke Ellington wrote Satin Doll. What, what are you talking about? Satin, I'm losing my mind here. Satin Doll <laughs> yeah. was written by Duke Ellington for Tony Ellen. She's still alive. She loves Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. She's retired. She just retired maybe like five years ago. She's a legend. Did the name Elling come from Ellington? Now that I don't know. I should find that out, though. And what do Reese's Buttercups... What did I miss here? Well, her, I'm but, trying my best to follow you. I just wanted to give you just a little... I wanted to let history, you know what like a beautiful history. legend she is, but at the same time that she's still this like tangible human connection that we can have. The kids, the kids that look up to her send her Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Do females like to go and watch striptease as well as guys? Females love it more than the guys. Why? Tell Be me why. It's empowering. I've had so many women come up to me after my performance and say, I wish I had the courage to do what you do. Uh, well, I'm not so sure. Uh, but <laughs> if, if you got married and had a child or something, would you want her to become a, strip a striptease dancer? I actually think that it would give her a lot of empowerment and independence i mean i would definitely want her to wait until she was of like legal sound mind kind of like getting tattoos and piercings so you would want that to happen i if i had a child i would want them to do whatever made them feel powerful independent strong something that they could share and leave a legacy 
I, w- I would champion anything that they wanted to do. As long as they didn't hurt themselves or someone else. Okay, where are, you sh- where are you taking your clothes off next? Certainly not in this office. <laughs> but where else are you going? Tonight, I will be at House of Yes. On Tuesday, I will be at Bathtub Gin. That's where I have my residency on Sundays and Tuesdays. Bathtub Gin? Is this is the one in Chelsea? Yes. What does it cost to go there? Nothing. Just have to make a reservation. What do you mean it doesn't cost anything? It just, just cost you making a reservation and enjoying the food, the cocktails, and the dancing ladies. So what is the show? Just you or what else? It's four burlesque performers and a host. And then there's a surprise at the end of the show that I won't tell anyone about. They have to see it in person. Could that be the bill? It involves <laughs> the bathtub. Oh. <laughs> oh, could you tell us a little about it? Well, bathtub gin is not just a clever name. They have a copper tub in the middle of the room. I'm not going to go. Why? <laughs> because uh, you're going to throw me in a bathtub? I would never throw you in the bathtub, and I won't put you in the splash zone. I'll put you next to me, and they, you'll be fine. No, I'm not going to strip <laughs> next to you. What are you, crazy? Get out of my place. I had enough of you. Get out. Get out. I was speaking to Maine Anders with her clothes on, and it was wonderful, and I love you. Get out. I had enough of you. Get out. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Cindy. I love you back. Bye. <laughs> Okay, stay with me. I'm about to make a station break, and then I'm going to tell you all about our current governor. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, I am now about to report on our current governor. Look, I don't care who you out there or anybody is voting for. I don't care if you're a right-winger a left-winger, or any of the various pains in the behind who are floating around what used to be the United States of America. I am only a working reporter, a columnist, a journalist. I am a devoted New Yorker. New York is my religion. I am not leaving like many others for that moratorium Florida, and I remain always a passionate lover of the United States of America. So, vote for whoever you choose. I don't care. It's your right. I'm only telling you what it was like when our first lady governor came to my home for an afternoon visit. And when I learned that Hokel is no local yokel. Okay. Now, Governor Hochul came to me. I learned over an afternoon a glass of wine and a cookie. She's not a shrinking violet. She's not a secondhand rose. Please, our governor, which I didn't believe, is so together, she's tighter than a legal block. Governor Kathy Hochul arrived in my home. She said she was coming at 615 She said she had one hour. She arrived exactly precisely at 6.15. She departed precisely exactly 7.15. She had with her no handbag, no phone, no emergency Kleenex, no need for the john or a button sewn, no nothing. Her pantsuit was ceaseless 
Chrysler's. Creaseless. No stain or rumple. Fresh clothes are in my car, she said. It's where I get dressed, she said. She also said she sometimes changes as much as 11 times in a day, and she changes in her car. Now, she was coming into my apartment, so I didn't go downstairs to see her car. I know she had Secret Service guys with her. So she changes, she says, in her car. Where the Secret Service guys are standing or looking or sitting or watching, this I don't know. But that's what she said. I don't want to look rumpled. I don't want to look dirty. I don't want to have a button come off. I want to make every appointment where my dress is perfect and starched and I will change clothes as often as I have appointments. Yeah, okay, okay. If that's what you want, that's okay. So, she says, fresh clothes are where I get dressed in my car. The lady I learned is about as indecisive as a rocket. She said to me, Penn Station's a hellhole. New Yorkers shouldn't have that. I'll redo it and I'll change the name. Yeah, okay. I mean, if that's the only thing you can think of to do, fine, go ahead and do it. Why is Penn Station named for another state, she said. This I don't know. That's her problem. She, I learned, is very controlled. There was no grazing my orders like an unemployed actor. She sampled. Her father was a steel worker. She knows tough. She is tough. Quote from her, Empathy came from my mother. Risk came from my father. My mother's sign was on our refrigerator, and it read, quote, Go into the world and do good. A social justice Catholic, she opposed the Vietnam War. She went to rallies and talked civil rights and helping the poor at the dinner table. She said that at age 10, I knew all about Martin Luther King. My mother and father were involved in all of those demonstrations. We had no money. Our home was a trailer park. Me, I was sassy even at that age and rebellious with the nuns. When I talked back, my mother pulled me out and into public school. I said, well, who are you? You have a family? Where do you come from? She says, I'm the second oldest of six kids. My brothers played sports. I didn't. I watched. I felt inferior. I didn't feel like I was just your normal growing up kid. I was actually nerdy. I was bullied. I was not one of the cool kids. I got knocked around. I was unappreciated. I was a rebel. I was rebellious. I was also homely. I had crooked teeth, bad skin. I was not an attractive teenager. I worked hard to start to look good. I worked hard for everything I ever got. I worked hard for the poor. I babysat. I worked four nights a week making pizzas. 
with an abusive boss, by the way. After working four hours Saturday and Sunday, I wanted one day off to graduate. The boss said, pee on that. Shut up or you're fired. But I wasn't fired. You know why? He needed me to make the chicken wings. In high school, said Governor Hochul, I was never voted the one likely to succeed. I belonged to no glee club. I No time I had to work. No time to do anything. I had to work. In college, Syracuse U. Look, I was very plain looking. I had absolutely nothing. My mother said to me, put some makeup on. My sister actually had to teach me about cosmetics. And I cleaned up and I became an associate with an established Washington law firm. I was the only woman in the room. When they, off- they actually offered me a cigar, and when they did, I said, thanks, not my brand. Listen, I married an attorney. He was a guy who prosecuted terrorists and assorted bad guys. Yeah, I said, okay, so you got married. You were a lawyer. Then what? She says, I needed baby care. It was stay with Senator Daniel Moynihan, that's who I was working for, or go back home. So, at the time, having kids, not being attractive, not having any future I knew about, I walked away from my job. I returned to my home in Buffalo, and I dragged those kids of mine door to door, and I taught them to work for social causes and help the poor. The era was a hotbed of activism, and signs began to happen. Look, I'm a, I think I'd say I'm a dealmaker. I know this state better than anybody. I've been all over it. There is nobody more qualified than I am. So what happened was I began to see options. I was told I'd lose no matter what I did because I had no mojo. But I saw options. I ran for Congress, even though they said I didn't have a chance. But you know what I learned? You can't honor fear. Fear is debilitating. I became fearless. Halloween, the Republican Party demonized me on a broom dripping blood, scarring people, Indecisive as a rocket is what I was. I was told that whatever I wanted to do, I'd lose. I didn't have anything that was exciting. Still, I ran for Congress. I learned that fear is debilitating. That's why I learned to become fearless. At Halloween, they didn't like me, but I learned to be what I am. I may have scars, but it made me tougher. People said never would I make lieutenant governor. Yeah, I am still standing. My mother was raised by a single mother. That's where the toughness comes in. And I learned you never let anyone underestimate you. But I also learned you always have heart. You always help the next guy. One reporter said about me, it's an iron fist in a velvet glove. 
But you don't want to take that glove off. Listen, I'll do a handshake, but if I have to punch, I will. Being against me is only an issue. I don't take it personal. Okay, okay, so she was doing all this talking. She never stopped talking for the hour that she was there. She had one little sip of wine, one cookie. But I asked her, okay, but when you're not being a lion tamer, what is personal human existence like for you? She said, well, I'm still the same weight. I have a power bar in the car was my lunch. I had a cup of tea. This was said through my chocolate chip cookie. She said, the only makeup I have in my car is a set of curlers. And I have that also in my room, which I put in myself. My hairstylist is in Buffalo. I explained to her that New York City has the greatest beauty salons in captivity. What is she doing with a Buffalo hairdresser? Buffalo is like ordering a custom evening gown in Yuma. I said, stop at Shake Shack. You're wearing a baseball hat sometimes. What you need is a facial and a manicure. Maybe it's so, she said. But I tell you one thing. I am going to fight. So how come all this about her early days and her upbringing and who she was and growing up, none of us ever knew before? Because, said Governor Hochul, nobody ever asked me before. That is our first lady governor of the state of New York. So, this week, Thursday night, John Katzmatidis, who owns this radio station, it was his wife Margot's birthday. And he decided to give a last-minute party, and he gave it at the university club. Lots of us were there. And we got up and we made speeches. I remember saying, I was told when I made the speech that I could have two minutes to speak. I said, two minutes? I was only given two minutes? You're kidding. The last guy who ever gave me just two minutes was on my wedding night. Anyway... I want to tell you a little thing about the University Club. It's not my favorite. It's on 54th and 5th. It's like almost 200 years old, and it still has the original members. One of our staff here at WABC, who was invited to this birthday party, arrived in sneakers. They wouldn't let him in. They said sneakers weren't allowed Really? The guy should have taken them off and come in his bare feet. Listen, I do not like the university club. Let me tell you why. One of its original members, an old dude who had to be older than King Tut, had me personally thrown out of the university club. Why? Because I was sitting with Hillary Clinton. I was then on television, on NBC, and I was going to be late to get back for my broadcast, my telecast. So 
I picked out a cell phone to call them and said, cover for me. I'm sitting with Hillary Clinton. I'm going to be late. Because I took out a cell phone, this antique picked himself up and hobbled over to where I was having lunch with Hillary. And he said to me, young lady, that shows you his eyesight if he calls me a young lady, young lady, that machine, that's my cell phone, that machine cannot be used here. We do not permit that machine to be taken out. So because I took out my machine to say I was going to be late at NBC, they actually threw me out. They threw me out of this club. And I have since ever called it Geezergate. So I had a wonderful time wishing my friend Margot Katsimatidis a happy birthday. But I just thought I might like to take the opportunity to pee on the club. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. I am Cindy Adams of the New York Post, and I'm here again next Sunday. Same time, same station. Perhaps I'll be a little more polite. But just remember, when you are starving and you go into a just-opened restaurant these days and it's so expensive suddenly and the prices are now newly so high, you want to know why? Because beggars can't be boozers. Love you. See you next week. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.